Самару Ты душа любезный Совсем не под пару Ты цветушка кроза Родного Кавказа Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And you patrons out there who are generous enough to invest in this show and become a patron and throw us some money every month. So if you like what we do here and want to help support it, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash not and give us some cash because we could certainly use it. How are things, Rusana? How has your week been? Oh, it's been pretty good. I mean, I feel like the quality of my week really depends on the health of my baby. So <laughs> he's been... He's Spoken been, like a parent. <laughs> he's been, yeah, healthy this week. Went to daycare. So I got a lot of time for myself and to get some work done. So I can't complain. And the dissertation is moving right along, huh? Yes, it's moving along quickly because I won't let it come to a standstill. I have to finish that PhD one day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you don't. You definitely don't want to be in a position where it's kind of haunting your every moment. <laughs> I mean, more than it already is, I should say. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So this week we have an interview I did actually way before the end of last year with a new co-worker of mine named Natalia Krylova. She is the new assistant of academic affairs in the center, where basically what she does is undergraduates who are getting their certificate in Eurasian studies. So I interviewed her because I periodically have to do these spotlights on co-workers or faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. And I just had really a lovely time talking to her and found it really interesting. One of the things we talked about that I wanted to ask you about, so she writes about Mayakovsky. And I find Mayakovsky really fascinating, not so much for his poetry, but for him, his aura, the way he presents himself. And I was curious, what are your thoughts when Mayakovsky pops into your head? What's your experience with him? I didn't really know his poetry, his work that well growing up. I remember at school we had to all, you know how in Russian school, well, I don't know about the States, but in Russia, uh, when you take a class in literature, you always have to learn poems. And so everybody had to learn Oblak of Shtanach. That's kind of like the only poem, I guess, maybe I knew. I didn't really read him much. I know now that Mayakovsky is kind of like a sex symbol, like this really brutal, macho, like the face and the body of the revolution. But growing up in Siberia in the 90s, I rarely heard about him in that kind of role. And I think later when I moved to Petersburg, I realized that, oh, okay, he's a much more important figure than I thought, not only as a poet, but also as a an activist and Rupert Revolutsi. <laughs> I don't know how to translate that. Uh, revolution's megaphone. <laughs> but yeah, and 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 I feel like Mayakovsky is much more present in the city landscape. You see uh, monuments, you see like him on the walls of houses, on the walls of buildings. So I feel like he's a lot more visible. Uh, in the capital as opposed to, say, like a peripheral Siberian town. Yeah. It's actually interesting, too, because if you consider, like, he was born in Georgia, right? Really? So he oh, I didn't actually, know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, he was born in Georgia. And so he grew up in the periphery. But I agree with you. I don't see him out in the periphery. His whole look mm -hmm. is very urban, very central. You know, I, I actually, my experience with Tomajkowski comes from when I was doing my dissertation on youth in the Komsomol. And for me, he always coupled with Sergei Yasinin. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because Mayakovsky is, this, like you said, like he's the revolution's megaphone. He has this very chiseled, very masculine, militant look, particularly when his head is shaved, his eyes. You know, he is a quintus in his past as a hooligan in the pre-revolutionary period. And he was admired by so many young people, right? He was kind of like the rock star of the time. But then you have somebody like Sergei Yasinin, mm -hmm. who is, I think, equally a rock star amongst Soviet youth. In fact, one of the things I found in the archives were suicide letters that would reference Yasinin. Mm. <laughs> but Yasinin, he's kind of a romantic, right? He's from the village and he looks like a, you know, like a boy. He has a boyish face. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, the contrast of these two always struck me as like these two figures who were, you know, if they were born in the late 20th century, they would have been two different types of punk rockers <laughs> or something. <laughs> Didn't they both commit suicide? I know that Yesenian definitely committed suicide. Yes. What about Mayakovsky? Both did. They both did. Yeah, Mayakovsky committed suicide as well in 1931, I want to say, one or two. I can't remember the date offhand. But yeah, and there's always been controversy around their suicides as well. There's been all sorts of conspiracy theories, particularly around Yesenian. So they also have this very tragic death. And probably, as you know, Yasinin was, I mean, he, was, he wasn't banned, but his poetry and his work was kind of suppressed until the 1960s. There was a big Yasinin revival. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Whereas Mayakovsky, his glory never really dulled that much, even despite the fact that he committed suicide. So why don't we uh, then move ahead to our interview with Natalia, or at least the interview I conducted with Natalia. Would you like to uh, introduce her? Sure, of course. Natalia Krylova is the Assistant Director for Academic Affairs at the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. She received her PhD in Russian literature from the St. Petersburg State University. Her research focuses on gender in Russian culture, avant-garde art, and the legacies of the two prominent Russian poets, Vladimir Mayakovsky and Vladimir Vysotsky. She is also a Russian language instructor, translator, and interpreter. Here's Natalia Krylova. Well, this is great because I was actually thinking a few weeks ago that you started here, and I, I don't think we've exchanged more than a couple of sentences. So this is actually nice to get to know you a bit. And one of the beauties of being an interviewer is that I don't have to talk that much. So I thought I'd start, or at least I thought we'd start our conversation by just having you introduce yourself. My name is Natalia Krylova. I am the newly appointed academic advisor at the Russian East European and Eurasian Center. And prior to that, I used to be a lifelong educator and researcher of the Russian avant-garde art. And to top it, I'm also a translator, interpreter, um, intercultural communicator, to mention but few, and after articulating these very humble titles. I believe it's time for acknowledgments and it's time to mention 
the giants, the circumstances, the conditions that made me who am I at the moment. And I believe I am the product of pretty unique time mm. and pretty unique region. Okay. And uh, speaking of the region, it is Karelian Republic in the northwest of Russia, which I like to compare to the frontier mm-hmm. in the U.S., as of the moment, interestingly enough, it's the longest border between Russia and NATO. But prior to that, it used to be a pretty unique region as mm-hmm. well, with a very diverse population comprising of uh, the Russians who were the descendants of the Novgorod Republic, the, the only democratic state in the Russian history, and uh, Finno-Ugric peoples. Mm-hmm. The population there is the mix of these two ethnic groups, two large ethnic groups. But I grew up surrounded by people who were representing very different cultural backgrounds mm. because since the formation of the Russian Empire, Karelia became what they called Podstalichnaya Sibir. Mm. or suburban (laughs) Siberia. So all of the political misfits, all of Mm -hmm. the dissidents were exiled there. And we can mention several pretty well-known figures among them, beginning with the first governor of Karelia, Gavrila Derzhavin, Mm -hmm. Pushkin's teacher, so to speak, who was a wonderful and talented poet, but a horrible statement. So (laughs) Catherine the Great had to kick him out. from St. Petersburg and sent him into this honorable exile. Mm-hmm. Also famous Russian author Fyodor Glinka mm-hmm. was exiled there. And later on, waves and waves of political dissidents yeah. were sent to Karelia, which created a very interesting and vibrant intellectual environment, which I grew up in or with, without even comprehending where mm-hmm. all these names are coming yeah. from. Yeah. For example, my father's school teachers all of them had Polish last names. Mm. And only mm-hmm. later, as I started researching the history of Russia, I figured out that they were the descendants of this rebellious Poles mm-hmm. who were exiled to Karelia after the right. famous rebellion in 1848. I should also mention a particular group that links me to America from my very early childhood. In 1930s, There was a very interesting and extraordinary exodus of Americans. I was going to bring this up. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And a group of about 12,000, I believe, uh, Americans, most of them of Finnish descent, have emigrated to the northwest of Russia in order to build their socialist Eldorado. Great idea. Awful time, (laughs) (laughs) because in the U.S. it was the period of Great Depression, which Mm -hmm. triggered uh, to a certain degree this exodus. But in Russia, in Soviet Russia, the the early 1930s were just the dawn of the purges. And uh, luckily, a good deal of this wonderful and idealistic films have survived. And the principal of my high school was the son of a person, uh, Oscar Corgan, who mm. could be called the Moses of right. this exodus, exactly. Oh, wow. So we were surrounded by this idealistic leftist yeah. people who definitely had to comply right. with the mainstream Soviet order. But at the same time, we could always sense this alternative histories, mm-hmm. this alternative worldview 
that existed somewhere else. And I believe that made me very prone to all kind of marginal, mm. secret, prohibited yes. elements of culture and ultimately brought me to researching what I am researching right now. And the time that became my formative period was also Outstanding. It was the late Soviet decades mm -hmm. and the first post-Soviet decades, the ah. transition, when everything was falling apart. But let me ask you, you said this really formative period of yours, mm -hmm. late Soviet years and the first post-Soviet years. I'm fascinated by this because I'm curious how it impacts one's life, how one experienced that time. And then also now having, you know, 30 plus years reflecting on that past. So... Talk about your experience first uh, of living through these years. Well, that was a very interesting time. First of all, because several layers were overlapping one, one another. On the one hand, the Soviet state was still pretty strong, and uh, we had several encounters with people in gray suits. You know, <laughs> I can tell stories and stories about what was going on in the dorms at the Leningrad State University named after A.A. Zhdanov, <laughs> one of the KGB people. Um, but at the same time, the boundaries, right, the limits, they started to collapse. And what was strictly prohibited and even unthinkable in the past it was resurfacing slowly but surely. For instance, mm -hmm. the rock club in Leningrad. My friends were frequenting there on the weekly basis and mm -hmm. the names of Gribinshikov, Shevchuk, Tsoi, and so forth. They were mentioned just, you know, like the next door guys' right. names over and over again. And since I was pretty young at the time, of course, I had several romantic <laughs> encounters and one of the most romantic recollections I have of this period was the guy who was courting me at the time. He didn't give me a diamond ring. He didn't give me a million of red roses. But when he happened to ha get uh, a copy of Dr. Zhivago mm. for just one night because you had to pass it over right. as soon as possible, he spent the entire night reading it to me on wow. the phone. <laughs> and that was more and more appreciated than any roses, any gifts or anything else. So mm -hmm. it was there. And phones, mm -hmm. they could have been listened to, but still it was happening. So it was a transition. It was a transition and it was very difficult to actually understand where yeah. everything is going because on the one hand, it was totally unpredictable. But on the other hand, what was in the core of the Soviet project in the very beginning of it, you know, mm. this utopian mm. idea of egalité, fraternité, liberté, yes, right? Yes. It was resurfacing too. And, you know, it was rediscovery of what it was meant to be mm -hmm. in the very beginning. And I believe the idealists uh, who initiated uh, the Troika, they were led and inspired yeah. by these ideals later kind of a on. revitalization. The, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. It kind of reinventing mm -hmm. the Soviet idea, but the, <laughs> the power was later taken by a very different cohort of right. people. And <sighs> that's what I am trying to understand doing my research. Is there anything you miss you feel that, I mean, I don't want to say nostalgia because that has lots of loaded 
oh, yeah. words. Oh, but, yeah. you know, people, and especially because it's a time of youth, right? Of course. <laughs> of course. You know, there's lots of fond memories. There's lots Being of... Being young and cute. Yeah, and the little popular things. Popular and all that stuff. Do yeah. you, you find yourself ever reflecting on like, wow, I, you know, I kind of miss these things that I experienced, not, not in the sense of like missing them to some sort of return, which is impossible, mm -mm. of course, mm -mm. but just kind of a, a kind of lament. Well, the hopes. The hopes. The hopes, yeah. Yeah, the excitement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, N nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. Not particular foods, not particular movies, right. not particular places. Just kind of the energy, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what about the post-1991? Oh, <laughs> that was, I would say, a huge trauma for mm. me, in fact, because that was the period when I was supposed to start working and teaching, mm -hmm. teaching Russian literature of the 20th century, but right. only to discover that what I know, what I was taught, was just a small fraction mm -hmm. of what there was in the first place, all of this unpublished, all of the prohibited authors, right. the emigre authors and so forth. So I had to re-educate myself while working full-time job. Right. Right. So <laughs> go to your second graduate school in a way. Exactly. Exactly. And getting this text was another hassle, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And I remember very vividly attending the first exhibition of Imca Press mm. in St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. where I just swept off everything I could. Wow. <laughs> and that was the only way to put my hands on lots of Solzhenitsyn's works and uh, Struver's works and uh, all of the emigre philosophers right. and um, uh, writers and so forth. So it, it was pretty traumatic, but very interesting. Yeah. Eye-opening, eye-opening, mind-expanding and uh, learning a lot about mm -hmm. life, about yourself. When you think back, do you recognize the Natalias of that period or are you totally a different? I think I'm pretty different right now. And do you kind of remember yourself then? I mean, I don't know if I can't do that, but I'm asking the question. So I find myself currently in the position pretty similar ah. <laughs> to what I was experiencing back then. You know, when you take a new position, you go through four stages of competence, right? right. And on the first stage, you don't know what you do not, do right. not know, right. right? And in the 90s, I also didn't know what I do not know. But I had to learn that and I right. was hungry for that. Yeah. I was curious. I was trying to reach out to everywhere I could to get the right texts, to understand them. And one of these traumatic uh, memoirs, for instance, is getting the text of Platonov's Foundation mm. Pit. Mm -hmm. And I had two nights to read it. Wow. And it was a thin book. Yeah. And I thought, oh, too nice, you know, for a person in literature studies. It's nothing but. <laughs> yeah, not Platonov. <laughs> not Platonov. <laughs> not at all. The first two pages and my brain was bleeding. I just <laughs> could not understand this language. Yeah. But later I managed to make it into a wonderful teaching module and mm. played with this text a lot. Yeah, my, my first dalliance, and I'll say it's a dalliance into Platonov, was actually a year ago. Because oh, I was wow. working on a podcast story about a piece of shit that was mailed to Stalin. And I know Platonov spoke a lot. Of, he wrote a lot about dirt and yes. grime and fluids. Soil. And so, yeah. Soil. And so I was reading his work to get a sense of kind of the cultural, you know, the relationship between his writing and thinking about 
desert and filth and all of these things in relation to Russian Soviet culture of the huh. time. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. He's a fascinating fellow. I, yeah. I must say. And you're an, at advantage right now because there are wonderful, yeah. brilliant translations yes. of Platonov by yeah. Robert Chandler and yes. his team. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Fascinating work. So turning to the things you've studied, what drew you to the avant-garde? Well, <laughs> we have probably touched upon this uh, topic already. And it happened pretty late in my life. During my grad school years, I underwent a pretty rigorous and very orthodox in the Soviet meaning of the word training. Mm -hmm. And although I came to my supervisor with the idea that I want to research and study Vysotsky, mm. at the time, the line I heard from him just left me only almost speechless and senseless and so forth. He was a wonderful person, get me right, ethically, morally, kindest, supportive empathetic and so forth. But he was terribly traumatized by the post-war era. Oh. Mm -hmm. Very, I, I think you can call him obscurantist. Mm. So the line he pronounced was, Vysotsky is the person who degraded several generations of Soviet people. End of quote. <laughs> so that was the end of it. I see. <laughs> <laughs> so I was imposed on a totally different author, very interesting one, mm -hmm. but still. So after I was done with Leonid Leonov, that was the topic of mm. my dissertation. And I think I managed to do the best I could with this author and with this particular theme. I turned finally to, to the authors who always attracted my attention and hypnotized me as wordsmiths. Mm. And they were two Vladimirs, <laughs> Mayakovsky on the one hand, to represent mm. the first wave of Russian avant-garde, the revolutionary utopian idealist literature and art, and uh, Vladimir Vysotsky on the other, mm. who is a representative and epitome of the second wave of the Russian right. avant-garde. And there was another with Vladimir, in between them, which I just decided I cannot afford because these two giants were quite enough. But Nabokov ah. was very fascinated by two, and I have a couple of uh, papers published about him as well. So, Let me ask you about Mayakovsky because I find him such an intriguing figure case. because in a way he and I would probably say Sergei Yasinin in a different way are kind of the first Soviet rock stars. They are. They are. You know, the, and, and hearing Mayakovsky's voice is such a visceral experience. What was it about Mayakovsky that kind of captivated your interest? Well, obviously, it happened much later in my life because, you know, the way they taught him yeah. at school was just a travesty. You know, uh, kind of. Guy who lost his way, maybe. Yeah. 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 But he's definitely a renaissance, renaissance mm -hmm. scale of a man. And his persona is much larger than anything he wrote yeah. in his early uh, years or later years and so forth. And my vision of him right now is the person who articulated the need for reinvention and the, the scenario for reinvention of mm. a man in mm. general, of a human being, yeah. as opposed to the kind of Old Testament man living by the rules given by Adam right. and Eve, right? Making into a happier, more productive, 
harmonious person mm -hmm. than it was. And he also created the vision for the reinventing the nation as well. Mm. So it was anthropological experiment right. he put in his writing and in his real life. It failed yeah. in the end, right? But he was brave enough to finalize this project on his own terms, mm -hmm. so to speak, mm -hmm. as tragic as his right. suicide was. And ever since starting to research him, I was intrigued by this theme, what went wrong. Mm. It was a great idea, <laughs> right? Egalité, fraternité, liberté. And the entire country seemed to have supported it, at least a big chunk of the country. Right. Where did we fail it? Where was the error? Was it the idea itself that was wrong, mm -hmm. genuinely wrong, or the application of this right. concept? When you're reading Platonov, are you looking at a similar – because Platonov, too, Absolutely. is dealing with this as someone like Mayakovsky who believes in the project, who's yes. bought into the project. And, of course, Platonov's kind of trailing away from it is a different process. But nonetheless, he's also thinking about similar questions in terms of building this new person. Yeah. What's going on? Mm -hmm. What's going wrong, right? Yeah. And they tried to the very last moment to deliver this message. Guys, we, we are doing something wrong. Let's mm -hmm. change. Let's reflect on that and let's do something differently. Mm -hmm. But the pendulum of history was going the other way, unfortunately. And if they lived which is just hard to imagine, through 30s and 40s, right? They could have probably delivered this message finally, mm -hmm. but it was not to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you feel that, and, and this is not just about Mayakovsky, mm -hmm. though I'm interested in, in what you have to say about this, but even this avant-garde, you know, people like Platonov, these dreamers, really, mm -hmm. Idealists. Idealists. Yeah. Do they matter today? When somebody asks you, why should I read Mayakovsky? And not from a kind of because you should know Mayakovsky because he's a great poet, but what relevance would he have in my life today? That's a great question, as a matter of fact. And my short answer would be they are more relevant than ever. Mm. I didn't read this article to the very end, but I remember recently stumbling upon this publication in the, in the New York Times. I don't remember the title precisely, but it was saying something along the lines that Russia will reinvent itself, but first it has to die. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going through the dying stage mm -hmm, right now. Mm -hmm. Right. The previous Russia is collapsing. Yeah. But the next step will be to reinvent it. And that's when guys like Mayakovsky, all of these founding fathers, right, mm -hmm. will come back and will be used as a source for inspiration and reinvention. Yeah. yeah. And let alone the fact that uh, he was such a brilliant wordsmith that he's one of the most quoted authors today. Mm. I don't remember the particular source, but the statement was that in public media, in, in newspapers and radio and so forth, Mayakovsky quotes are everywhere. Mm. They're part of the of the national language corps. Yeah. So, so he still has quite a reverence in Russia oh today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the younger generations, they love him. Mm. They love him. There are lots of 
hip hop versions uh-huh. of his <laughs> poems and so forth. And the museum in in Moscow is having lots of attendance. Yeah, and days. and what about his his? Uh, I mentioned him earlier. Well, at least I consider the his kind of rival of the time, Sergei Yasin. He is. What is your thoughts on Yasinin's legacy and his place in in all of this? The little I know of his work, Mm -hmm. it's a different type of concern for him. But nonetheless, he had such a powerful status in the 20s. Yeah, he is. They they actually kind of appear. Yeah, very much so. They complement each other. Mm -hmm. They represent two different... Two hooligans. (laughs) Two hooligans on the one hand. Yeah, two revolutionaries because to a certain degree, Yesenian was a revolutionary Mm -hmm. in poetry. Yeah. And not only in poetry, of course. But they represent two different sides of the Russian national psyche. Hmm. And while Mayakovsky is the representation of this ego, right, very strong super ego, Yesenian is more of this collective patriarchal mindset mm-hmm. representative. He's he's the communalist. Yes. He's not a communist, but he's right. a communalist. Very much that's so. that's why he ultimately committed suicide because he felt no belonging. There was no belonging to any community because the right. previous Russia, patriarchal Russian was gone and the new one just wouldn't accept him, mm-hmm. wouldn't embrace him and he couldn't be alone and like Mayakovsky. Right. Right. So interesting. So mm-hmm. you, you've also, like you said earlier, you were interested in Vladimir Rysotsky, the kind of next avant-garde, mm-hmm. as you said. And one of the articles that really captured me that you've written is – and I, I want to talk about the things that – the themes that you write about in this, which are, I think are really interesting. They're very eclectic. <laughs> yeah, very – which I love. I love it. And what really struck me is that this article you wrote looking at the use of the color black, the meaning of black – in the music of Johnny Cash and Vladimir Rysotsky, which I must say, I never actually thought of them as a pair. But when I saw that, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so what is this all about, this issue of the color black? I mean, we all know this from Johnny Cash because he's the man in black. But and we saw- can add Platonov to this yeah, equation too. So too. Yes. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you so much for this question. And I, I will stun myself. Uh, the first time I was exposed to Johnny Cash as the name first and then as the figure, mm-hmm. emblematic figure of Americana and American culture, country western and so forth. I came to the U.S. in early 2000s and I made a commitment from my first days that I'm not going to be homesick. I'm going to immerse myself in the the local culture, Mm -hmm. communicate as much as possible. I will be reading newspapers. I will be watching TV. And one of the first newspapers I opened and started reading through had the eulogy for Johnny Cash. Mm. He had just died. Mm. I had no idea whatsoever who he is. What is his significance in American culture and so forth? But as I was reading through these lines, My jaw was dropping because every line could have been applied to Vysotsky, Mm. the man in black, loved by both inmates of Folsom Prison and presidents, Mm -hmm. who transcended genres and mixed them up, who was writing and singing about the collective trauma of American people and so Mm -hmm. forth. And 
it was almost like find 10 differences right. between the two, Vysotsky and Cash. And as I started researching him and researching the tradition of American country western music, everyone is mocking me among my friends <laughs> for my radio always playing country uh-huh. in, in the car. I came to realization that they are much more closer related than, for example, Vysotsky and Bob Dylan, who is very mm. commonly compared to. Yeah, interesting. Like uh, when Vysotsky was visiting the U.S. with his uh, wife, Marina Vladi, he was interviewed by Dan Ratter mm-hmm. on CBS 16 Minutes. And Dan Ratter, while introducing him to the American audience, uh, said that he's the Russian or Soviet Bob Dylan. So mm-hmm. to speak, but in my understanding, he's much closer to Johnny Cash, who he had no idea about. They right. didn't know each other completely, but this black color is the color of trauma, mm-hmm. of soil, of power. I don't remember who of the reviewers said about Johnny Cash that he dresses up like a foppy coroner <laughs> and uh, sings and acts as a priest of mm-hmm. sorts, right? Mm-hmm. It's the color of power, yeah, yeah. right? And machismo. Yes. That's yes. what brings them very closely together. And Vysotsky, he's a man in black too, right? Yeah. He mm-hmm. was uh, uh, acting, uh, he was playing Hamlet, his stellar role, his most important role, wearing black. Mm-hmm. And he was buried in black. Oh, his, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Hmm. It was his Hamlet suit hmm. that he was wearing. When they buried him, uh, other important roles he played, uh, last roles, Don Juan mm-hmm. in uh, Little Tragedies. His Don Juan is almost dressed like a monk. Hmm. It's black, <laughs> black garbs of sorts. And Gleb Zhiglov in the series, Mesta Vstrecha Izmenit Nelzia, he's wearing this black, long leather hmm. coat, mm-hmm. which Johnny Cash could have worn, yes, right? Sure. You know. Mm-hmm. Highwayman, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely, so to speak. yeah. So, I believe that's the common denominator: mm-hmm. the understanding and belonging to this collective ethos of their nation that mm. black color marks. And interestingly enough, in Vysotsky's oeuvre, black also has lots of positive connotations because he juxtaposes it not to the white. The ideal, which was terribly compromised mm. in Soviet culture by that time, yeah. but to gray. To gray. And gray is no color. It's in between. And in Russian Christianity, gray is probably the most despised color because it's the person who is neither hot mm-hmm. nor cold. It's kind of <laughs> non-entity. Yeah. In between, stuck in the limbo, so to speak, and uh, in non-mainstream language, it also was a marker of the secret services. Yeah, men in Mm -hmm. gray suits, so to speak. So there is a line in one of Vysotsky's poems saying, Мой черный человек в костюме сером. (laughs) My black man, Uh meaning kind of the shade of of my psyche. So did did Vysotsky, because in, in, of course, in English, the color black... It's associated with evil. It's associated with dirt. It's associated with the void, death. Vysotsky, how does he understand this? I mean, you you said power. It's more, does he have a more positive? I believe so. I believe so. Is this a standard view of, in Russian culture, the role of the color black? I would say in 1960s, it probably was. Okay. It probably was. There, there is an emblematic poem written by Vysotsky. It's a ballad of truth and lie. 
and it is the truth that wears black there, mm. while the lies stole the white, beautiful clothes and runs around representing itself as an ideal of sorts. Huh. And that's a metaphor of what have happened. Right? Yeah. This beautiful idea, this wonderful utopian concept was compromised right. and sold to the people while the real truth was mm -hmm. betrayed and stoned and, you know, despised, ignored and so forth, neglected. Yeah. It, black color obtains lots of positive connotations in Vesotsky. I did server. not know that. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about some of the themes that you've dealt with because I was just going through the things you've written. I was really struck by some of the things. Gender, masculinity in particular, yeah. issues of the body. You have articles about animals. Animal. Animal. Okay. Just one. Just, okay. <laughs> issues of nature, disease amongst other ones. What draws you to this eclectic view of or eclectic attention to these small things? They're not small, but they're – openings maybe into larger issues. Yeah, they probably look very eclectic, mm -hmm. but there is a common denominator to all that. It's this anthropological experiment mm. that Russia started in the beginning of the 20th century and repeatedly failed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there were at least three attempts to reinvent the country, to reinvent, reinvent the nation, but every time the democratization failed for whatever mm -hmm. reason. So I was just trying to brainstorm this dilemma from various perspectives, trying mm -hmm. to find the key, to find the kind of code, right, to what have happened, what went wrong. And of the animals <laughs> you have mentioned, I was particularly intrigued by the image of the horse, which is quintessential and omnipresent in both Mayakovsky's and Vysotsky's writings. Mm -hmm. And it's a very powerful metaphor that is rooted in the concept of the tree of life. Mm. Yggdrasil in, mm. in sagas, in right. Scandinavian folklore, has a horse as, as its double, so to speak. So the falling nation, the falling history, the decomposing body of the nation, that's mm -hmm. what this horse is representing. And probably there is no need to quote Vysotsky, right? His became basically his emblem, mm -hmm. right? His fastidious horses that he is trying to, to rush and rear back at the same time. It's the symbol of history right. and life in general. And gender was something that was completely ignored and neglected during my formative right. years as a scholar, right? So when it was finally available, I just dived. Which is interesting because Mayakovsky is so male. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. And nobody else has finally written about that. So my book that is sitting there for five years at least, I need to complete it because yeah. I was waiting for somebody to write this book about uh, construction of masculinity yeah. in Mayakovsky's server. There's wonderful volumes written about, for example, how the Soviet man was unmade by Lydia Gaganovsky yeah. and lots of other wonderful research in the West and in Russia. Mm -hmm. But no, well, hopefully you'll get back to it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, or somebody will finally do it for me and I can. You know, your interest in, because you've, you've said it repeatedly so far, issues of the nation, reconstruction, new people, you know, and how construction of a new man, yeah. right, a new nation, right? Mm -hmm. And 
And of course, we know those who are familiar with the Soviet project, this is one of its modernizing thrusts. Perestroika is a time to try to reclaim that idealism. Mm -hmm. But when you look at Russia today, do you ask the question or look at Russia today with what is the new nation that came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the construction of whatever we want to call this new order? Is there a new person? Is there a post-Soviet person that you identify or, or what? It's a horrible question to ask. Well, that's why I wouldn't ask it if it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> Frankly speaking, every time I think about Russia today, I am at the edge of crying. I sympathize. My, my world is dying. Yeah. My people are dying. My team is losing, <laughs> <laughs> to put it in American terms. And I travel there regularly because my mom is still mm. there. And, mm. you know... It's, it's sad to look at the people because they're so brainwashed mm. and they're so scared and this fear is present on the capillary level of everyday life. And for example, the TV series everyone is discussing right now, Slova Pacana Krovina Asfalte. I don't know if, even how to translate this title, yeah. Blood on the Asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> and it basically kind of explores the formation of the generation of the politics mm. that are currently in power, what they came from, the street gangs right. and so forth. The key words in all of the discussions I followed is fear. Mm. Everyone is in fear. Mm. And I believe we are going through this stage, which I've already mentioned, uh, quoting this article in the New York Times, Russia has to die first. Mm -hmm. So it goes through through the death. But quoting the biblical lions, <laughs> the grain cannot grow back without dying first. Mm -hmm. As someone who is an outsider to all of this and looking at Russia today in the last 20 years, it's frustrating to put it mildly mm -hmm. because there's so much dynamism. There's so much potential. Yeah. So much creativity, which is not unique to this period, of course. We've seen this repeatedly throughout its history. Or to this country. Mm, or, yes. Speaking of Russia. Yeah, right? yeah. But the state is this kind of yoke on that creativity. And, I mean, the Soviet period was in many ways uh, similar in many ways of this Creative thrust on the one hand yeah. and this kind of crushing of it, suppression mm -hmm. of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this kind of opposing dialectic that seems to govern much of Russian history. Well, it's definitely interconnected strands, mm -hmm. the, the suppression and the revolt, the creativity, because lots of best uh, writing songs, music, mm -hmm. art was produced as juxtaposition to that, right? Mm -hmm. You begin to cherish freedom and liberty when you're deprived of them, right. right? So forth. So I don't know where this all will develop in the future, but mm -hmm. I am counting on some kind of collective mind, hive mind, mm. to find the way out from this horrible conundrum. And I can't help but remembering an episode that became 
some kind of eye-opening moment for me too. In 2014, I was still teaching at the University of Minnesota at the time when Russia next Crimea, mm-hmm. and I'm walking into my Russian language classroom, and the students immediately attack me with a question, what do you think about that? And I'm telling them, guys, it's my personal opinion, of course, but from my perspective, it's an absolute absurdity. It is as if Minnesota would declare a war on and I mentally <laughs> unroll the map of America mm-hmm. in front of me on Wisconsin. Yeah, <laughs> And I expect somebody at least to giggle, mm-hmm. but no, mm. there was dead silence. Mm. And then kind of athletic-looking guy sitting in the back would say, Wisconsin sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, okay, we are not the only idiots <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> Humans, great apes, mm-hmm. we all find somebody to confront and to antagonize mm-hmm. and demonize and so forth. As someone who's been living outside of Russia for at least 20 years, Is it an alien place to you? This comes with the kind of immigration experience too, where you, once you're outside of the bubble, broadly described, you are given a perspective where things that were once very familiar now look, I mean, look insane, (laughs) put it mildly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. As awful as... It feels to admit mm-hmm. that, but I'm an alien there yeah. and I'm being spotted once in a while, for example. I would be in the stores talking to the store assistant and they would look at me and all of a sudden ask, where do you live? <laughs> and I would go, what do you mean? I'm just around the corner, Rovio Street. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, where, where do you live? <laughs> Is there something in the way I'm speaking? Yeah, I was going to ask. I'm acting and so forth and... Over the past couple of years when I was traveling there, there were a couple of really scary moments mm. when I was talking to people and not knowing who am I and where I'm from. They would address me as some kind of Putin supporter mm. and expect me act mm-hmm. um, accordingly, mm-hmm. which I could not. And right. It was really scary. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, I feel almost like a spy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, do you, and you don't know what it is. Is maybe you've picked up some sort of American mannerisms of or something in your Possibly. accent changed or... I don't think don't, so, uh, but... <laughs> who knows? International who knows? accent, the way you approach things, approach people, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. Well, you've also spent a long time teaching Russian language. What do you say to students who who are like, hey, Natalia, I'm kind of interested in this language. I want to learn it, but eh, I don't really know what to do or I I don't know if it's maybe it's too scary or what what do you tell students who are interested in, in learning Russian? Well, there are several possible answers to this question. It depends on the student. Usually I'm dealing with pretty committed students and they know what they want and Mm, why they want that. But generally speaking, learning foreign language, any foreign language has lots of advantages. And one of them is you're going to learn who you are in the first place. Because when you immerse into a different language, you immerse yourself into a different culture as well, Mm -hmm. right? And that's when you begin to discover where your boundaries are, Mm. right? That looks different. That's not who am I, right? And uh, the way different languages interpret and perceive time, space, Mm -hmm. motion, 
and so forth. They're so different and it's so amazing. I heard more than once from my students that it's like time travel. It's like Star Trek. <laughs> right. Going going to different universe with more than three dimensions and trying to navigate it. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. It's great. And jiggling the two languages or living with several languages exposes you to to such a wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. about world and in the first place about yourself. Yeah. I have a friend in New York who's a wonderful translator and author of just fascinating project, Vladimir Vysotsky in English. He's translator and a performer of his songs, a brilliant one, and he has a habit of posting every week your daily dose of translation. And I meant to ask you, why are you doing that? Why mm-hmm. do you need to translate all these little things from Russian into English? But the answer came from a different friend of mine at some point, a poet, and we've been just conversing very often recently. And he quoted his own poem that had the line, язык." Mm. I am learning a foreign language in order to find different words to describe what torments me. <laughs> it's probably the power of estrangement, right? Mm-hmm. To, to quote one of the avant-garde scholars, Viktor right. Shklovsky. You get a different optic. It's like getting an extra pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It will help you to see the world differently. Yeah, different colored glasses, maybe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Or different power of glasses, (laughs) certainly. Yeah, you begin to to see things that you have never seen before. And you're certainly aware of a whole bunch of uh, English words that do not exist in in Russian and vice versa, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've recently had this experience uh, because I do some editing for some Russian friends for their website when they do English translations Uh of things. Uh And I've translated like journalistic articles from Russian to English. And one of the challenges, this is just my impression as a novice, you, you run into these moments where in one of the languages, they require a certain amount of words to explain something. Mm-hmm. And the other language, it uses... Shrinks to four letters, <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, not having any professional background in translation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I see the challenge that translators have in how much, how literal you want to be and how much do you want to capture the meaning, but not just the meaning, but the underlying emotion that props that meaning up. And I, I, I would imagine this is why people have such a hard time translating somebody like Platonov, mm-hmm. <laughs> where the, the Russian words are saturated with things. Connotations. Yeah, and you can't, it's really hard to replicate that in another language. It's impossible. Yeah, so you also, in one of your other hats that you've worn, you've been an interpreter, translator. Mm-hmm. Is there a a moment or a memorable moment of translating, whether it's simultaneous or on paper, where you that sticks with you, that you come back to, maybe it's a trauma, maybe it's a an aha moment. <laughs> Both. Both, as a matter of fact. Just like you, I am not an expert in yeah. translation studies, but you have just articulated the two theories mm-hmm. that exist there. The first one that says you have to stick to the literal meaning of the word. And uh, I remember being trained particularly to, to be a perfect ninja in mm. translation. You have to be absolutely effective and absolutely invisible. Yeah. 
But there is a different approach, right? When you are not supposed to convey the words per se, but the emotion, the feelings, the connotations, the the culture per right. se. And when you're doing, for example, medical interpretation, mm-hmm. gosh, boy, is it difficult. I bet. It's difficult because it's not just the language. It's the way people perceive their own bodies, mm. their own gender, their perception of life and death right. completely. And I remember stumbling upon a particular situation when a doctor, an older American doctor, very authoritarian, he was trying to tell me, you have to translate me word by word. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell him, sir, it's not going to work. It's incomprehensible. It's absolutely, it's always uh, a localization of mm-hmm. sorts, right? You have to adjust, translate it to a different culture, not into a yeah. different language. I'm just thinking like in a medical situation, because say pain is culturally, but also subjectively, you know, the meaning of pain, how one measures pain. Yeah. And how do you translate that? If you have someone who is, who is in pain, how do you translate their articulation of that pain to, say, a, doc- a, a doctor who doesn't speak their language. Exactly. I mean, to me, it's an impossible task. <laughs> <laughs> Mission is impossible. Yeah. And I remember who was that? Robert Frost, I believe, mm. who said that it's the poetry that's being lost in translation. Mm. It's not only poetry. It's lo- lots, lots of content, lots of emotion, lots of culture. And that's another reason to learn a foreign language, right? Yeah. Because it exposes you to a whole different world. And uh, for instance, I remember it was actually my first experience uh, lecturing about Vysotsky to a Western audience. And it was in Finland, which mm. you would think about as pretty close to Russia culture. And it is in so many ways. But I was commenting upon um, uh, Vysotsky's series of songs about Kabak, the mm-hmm. tavern and so mm-hmm. forth. And Kabak in Russian is not a tavern. Mm-hmm. It's not a pub. It's not a bar. It's not a saloon. <laughs> so I had to spend probably 20 minutes explaining them what mm. kabak is in Russian culture. It's the opposite of a church. Mm-hmm. It's a sacred place of sorts, but you go there not for salvation, but mm-hmm. to kind of sell your soul to to devil, right? Mm-hmm. To Satan and so forth, to commit social suicide of sorts. Right. Huh. And Finns were listening and nodding their heads. And later in the evening, they took me and my colleague to a local pub. It was a cute little place where people were dancing polka. <laughs> and uh, our host, the, the department chair, pointed at them and looking at me and smiling sneakily, I would say, doesn't look like kabak. <laughs> and I realized I wasted this 20 minutes completely. <laughs> no dancing polka in Russian kabak. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and finally, you're new here at Pitt as the assistant director for academic affairs. So you're in Reese, you're basically helping students navigate their way through the various courses, dealing with the region that we focus on, giving them advice. Again, going back to the issue of students, students who are curious about studying the Reese region, what do you tell them that what is the value or not value in a a kind of monetary, like what are you going to get out of it, but value in terms of the knowledge that you acquire kind of contributing to a greater understanding of whatever place that they're interested in? How do you tr- get them attracted or interested in maybe devoting themselves to, <laughs> like we have, to <laughs> to these things? 
Well, I'm observing quite different dynamic, as a mm. matter of fact. Ah, okay. They come to me ah. with their message <laughs> and mission. The students I'm dealing with is definitely creme de la creme mm. of this generation. They're very committed. They're very curious. They're very intellectually active, mm. so to speak. And all of them seem to share this understanding that... I have that Reis region is the place where the history is being made today. Mm. It's some kind of a Middle Earth, right? In <laughs> <laughs> Tolkien-esque yes. yes. terms. And that's where a good deal of European civilization has started in mm -hmm. the first place, right? right. So we're witnessing a very interesting period of time. It's very frustrating, it's very traumatic, mm -hmm. but it's formative for some new humanity, new era, hopefully yeah. a happier and brighter one. That was Natalia Krylova. Natalia Krylova is the Assistant Director for Academic Affairs at the Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She received her PhD in Russian Literature from the St. Petersburg State University. Her research focuses on gender in Russian culture, avant-garde art, and the legacies of two prominent Russian poets, Vladimir Mayakovsky and Vladimir Vysotsky. She's also a Russian language instructor, translator, and interpreter. Well, thank you very much, Rusana. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. This episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at Podcuts Editing. Daniel does a lot of great work for us. And if you have any audio work, I highly recommend Daniel's services. So please check him out at podcutsediting.com and he will give you your first edit for free. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners just like you. If you value what we do here and like this podcast and listen to it regularly and get something out of it, please show us your appreciation by investing in it, by becoming a patron, throw us a few dollars every month to support us. It's really important and it also makes us feel good. So until next time, bye. Bye. Потом ее встретим, чтоб не убежал.